Now and Zen Japan now has its own website. The URL is nowandzen.jp. Now and Zen, all one word, N-O-W-A-N-D-Z-E-N dot J-P. There you can easily browse all of the episodes, subscribe to the podcast, read all the show notes, you can even leave a voice message. So check it out, nowandzen.jp. Now, back to the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Dream Drive, the customized camper van company. Why not rent a camper van and explore more of Japan in comfort and style? Dream Drive. Now and Zen is also sponsored by the Gugu Mattress Company. Super comfortable and very affordable. Nothing better than a great night's sleep with a Gugu mattress. Discount codes available later in the podcast. Hello, everybody. This is part two of my discussion with author Robert Whiting about his recent best-selling memoir, Tokyo Junkie, 60 Years of Bright Lights, Back Alleys, and Baseball. In this episode, Bob tells great stories about some colorful foreign players and well-known Japanese baseball stars. He also talks about how the export of Japanese players to the major leagues has become a big catalyst for change in Japanese baseball today, the riveting story about how writing his first book, The Chrysanthemum and the Bat, completely changed his life, and clarifies one story about Yankees slugger Hideki Matsui and his collection of adult videos. This episode, we talk mostly about the baseball stories from his memoir. In part one, if you want to go back and listen, which was episode 41 for those keeping track, we discussed the bright lights and back alley stories from his book. These revolved around his early years in Japan, starting in 1962, the first Tokyo Olympics, his self-described degenerate years, which covered his time hanging out with the Yakuza, all the way through to today, where he is an acclaimed author and expert on Japan. Basically, these two podcast episodes are a rare oral history of Japan from one Olympics in 1964 to the Tokyo 2020 Games. It does not get any better than this. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Mr. Robert Whiting, Part 2. Has Japanese baseball changed? These days it has, you know, after Nomo went to the States, Nomo said, because Nomo had a sore arm, and his manager, this Keiichi Suzuki, and Suzuki said, go to the farm team and just throw every day and it'll go away. Nomo told me, he found a way to get to the, the States and he signed with the Dodgers, but he told me, the only reason I went was not because I wanted to play in the major leagues, but because I couldn't stand Suzuki. He said, if he'd been fired, then I would have stayed in Japan. And up until then, they used, the Japanese used to think that if Americans complained about the crazy camp, spring training, you know, it's too long, too hard, thousand fungal drills, stupid. They used to think the guys were just lazy. And if pitchers like Clyde Wright didn't want to throw 100 pitches in the bullpen every day, there was something wrong with him. He was taking Japanese lightly, you know. He, was, uh, he wasn't showing proper respect for the game. Right. But then they began to see through these reports and the experiences of Japanese players in the States that, well, maybe they weren't being selfish Wagamama Gaijin, that there was actually a different way of doing things. I love baseball, too. I read Chrysanthemum and the Bat, You Gotta Have Wah, 
you write about a lot of different and colorful characters, right? Baseball characters. Who was the most memorable or somebody that had the biggest impact on your life? Well, there were more than one. I like this pitcher, Masaichi Kaneda, 400 game winner. San Francisco Giants tried to sign, sign him, but he refused to go. He said he didn't, didn't want to have to learn English. He said he had you know records to break in Japan, he was going to stay. But he was quite interesting, really cocky guy. He had the same routine uh, when he was pitching. He would emerge from the dugout uh, at the end of each inning when it was time to take the mound. And he would walk across the chalk line between home plate and first base. And he would throw his glove on the mound. And he would hit it right in the middle of the mound about every time. You know, he hardly ever missed. He just did it. And then he would walk to the mound and he would pick up his glove. And he would walk out to second base, and he would start his warm-ups. And he would do this eight or ten warm-ups, and with each pitch, he would move closer to home plate, and finally he'd be on the mound. And he did this every inning? Every inning, every time. i never seen anybody else do that. And uh, he just had this way of staring at the batter as if, how dare you? <laughs> Who do you think you are? Yeah. You know, He was really interesting. And then there was Anatsuk. Uh, Yutaka Anatsu, when yep. he came, that guy was something else. One season he had 401 strikeouts. First season he could only throw a fastball. Didn't know how to throw a curve. Then he learned how to throw a curve, a curve change. And he could throw them from the same motion. So he could throw 100 miles an hour plus a changeup. And, you know, when he was on, these guys couldn't hit him. But he was also intimidating. He looked intimidating. Well, he was like 5'11", but he had muscles. And he was, you know, this guy was, uh, if he hadn't been a baseball player, he would have been a Yakuza. He was the toughest guy, they said, in all professional baseball. Nobody wanted to fight him. They were scared of him. The very first baseball game I saw was 1963 at Karakwin Stadium between the Chunichi Dragons and the Yomiri Giants. Nagashima was this very showy, flashy guy who, he liked to field ground balls intended for the shortstop, <laughs> that kind of thing. He played cut third. In, he played third, right, so he would cut in front of the, the shortstop. O batted uh, third and Nagashima fourth, but most, you know, he was so interesting, just standing in the on-deck circle. He had all these movements and gestures and moving his neck back and forth and, you know, looking up in the stands and waving to somebody and... The, Maybe he did that intentionally because O was a better hitter. I don't know. But I remember uh, in that game, he singled to left field, and there was a left fielder, Shinichi Eto, who was a batting champion and one of you know Nagashima's main rivals. Nagashima you know, rounded first base. Ball stopped at Eto's feet, and he's standing there. He didn't pick up the ball. He's just looking at it, and he looks at Nagashima, and he waves, come on, come on. Let's see you try for second. Really? <laughs> You were there. Yeah. This was individualism at its best (laughs) with these guys. and uh, So that's why I got interested. It was later that I learned not everybody was like that. The Japanese approach to baseball was more robotic. And, you know, there was O with his his one-legged stance. He had a hitch in his swing, so he had his Aikido teacher, became his batting coach, and taught him to, to balance on one leg. He would stand there like some, you know, Lake Narkuru stork or flamingo. He'd balance on one leg, and he could just stand there with his knee raised, and he would wait for the pitcher. It was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. 
he hit the ball hard. You know, people will say that he wouldn't have hit as many home runs in the States, and I don't believe that. He was tremendously powerful. Did you ever interview O or Nagashima? I, I interviewed him. I went to Nagashima's house. I went to O's house. I went there with the Newsweek crew to interview him, and when he was approaching Aaron's record, he had his favorite chair in the house. It was this huge, easy chair that was shaped like a, a fielder's mitt. Okay. And he said, I want you to sit here. This is my favorite chair. And he went into the kitchen, made coffee for everybody. and I'm sorry, this is O or Nagashima? O. And made coffee for everybody and brought it out. His wife wasn't there. And uh, just as nice as could be. Just one of the best people I've ever met. Talk about a, a dignified human being. He, he was just the best. Nagashima was the kind of showman. He liked to show off. Went to his house with this Canadian crew, CBC crew. They were doing a documentary. We arrive at Nagashima's house in Denon Chofu. And there in the, in the Genkan, the entryway, there's a photo of Nagashima shaking hands with Pierre Trudeau. And we go in the living room and sit down, directed to sit on the sofa next to a table, which has a picture of Nagashima meeting the Pope. <laughs> I see where this is going. And there are, you know, photos on the wall, Nagashima with Ronald Reagan. You know, he was like the unofficial prime minister of Japan. Anybody who, any importance who came to Japan, he, he got to meet them. And he says to me, mean the best friend, though. They're all my best friends. Right. He was something else, a real hot dog. What about the foreign baseball players? You must have interviewed all of the foreign baseball players here in Japan. Most of them. Yeah. I've interviewed several hundred. Daryl Spencer was the one. Daryl Spencer, he played for this, these New York Giants and then the San Francisco Giants. And, I mean, he was a, a solid player. You know, he hit 260, 270. 20, 25 homers a year. Big guy. Then he came to Japan and he almost won the home run title. They didn't want a foreigner to win, so they started walking him all the time. Is he the one who held the bat upside down? Upside down. down. He was the one, right? In one double header, they walked him eight times in a row. So in one of those at-bats, he just stood up there with the bat upside down. They still walked him. I have a photo of that, you know, chrysanthemum and the bat. Maybe that's where I saw it. I finally sat down and wrote Chrysanthemum the Bat in New York after getting so much flack from my friends, you know, for not doing it. Guy said to me, I guess you don't have what it takes, do you? <laughs> and that did it. I finished the draft and I sent it to him. Daryl Spencer, he was at Wichita, in Wichita, Kansas. He was managing the Coors baseball team. I flew out to see him and he took me to the Coors brewery and ordered a big pitcher of beer. And he... Pulls out the manuscript, he puts on these rimless spectacles, and he says, okay, let's go over this. He says, you know, this is the first book that I've ever read from start to finish. Oh, really? That's a nice compliment. And then he started explaining to me. He picked out some mistakes, and he explaining his philosophy. He said, the key to understanding Japan, to doing things the right way, is to just do the opposite of what you would do in the United States. So that means you show up for practice early, you don't argue with the coaches, you never complain, never swing at the first pitch, and never ever play practical jokes on your teammates. <laughs> just do that and you'll, you'll be just fine, as long as you hit the ball, of course. So he was great, best, one of the best interviews I've ever had. So I went back and finished it. My book was published when I was 34. So I wrote it when I was 32. 
I took it to 12 different publishers. And they all said it's too off the wall. So I t- said, well, maybe I can get a chapter sold. So I went to Sports Illustrated, submitted it. And they called me back a couple weeks later. And this woman named Patricia Ryan brings me into her office. And she says, well, we really like this. And we want to uh, publish this chapter here. And we think it's terrific. And then she says, I know you're having a hard time getting it published. Which, which chapter was it? The one on the managers taking QEO, taking breaks. About how managers, they, if the team is losing, they'll just take a, a vacation. Okay. <laughs> and if the team starts winning, that's evidence they want the manager to come back. Okay. Again, another yeah. the opposite right. type uh, mentalities. Yes. She gave me... Talk to this guy. She gave me the name of a guy at Dodd Mead Publishing Company. They put out the Agatha Christie books. This was on a Friday afternoon. And Monday afternoon, I had a contract. Wow. She said, tell them that Sports Illustrated is buying first serialization rights. And I think you'll have a positive response. So I wow. told the guy, and they said, okay, we'll take it. And that woman, Patricia Ryan, went on to become the first female managing editor of People magazine. Did you keep in touch with her throughout the years? I sent her, you know, a thank you note, Christmas card every now and then. Sure. That was something. And, you know, she didn't have to do that. She was just a nice person. And she yeah. just decided to do something nice for somebody. It's the way life should be. It changed my life completely. We finished the translation of Chrysanthemum Bat, came out in Japanese, and it was a bestseller. And the phone started ringing. Changed my life completely. One thing New York Yankees Hideki Matsui was famous for was his collection of Japanese adult videos. During one press conference, you were interviewing him, and when you were all finished, he gave all the reporters a copy of an adult video from his collection. Now, Bob, I assume he must have given you one. So what did you do with this little treasure. No, no, that's not how it played out. I I went to interview him in his first season in spring training in Legends Field. And uh, before I left, I I flew there to interview him. I picked up a copy of Nikon Gendai, and there was this big story in there about Hideki Matsui's porno collection, 1,000 DVDs or something like that. Yeah. And so when we met, we met at 9 o'clock in the morning at Legends Field. We were sitting in the dugout. Nobody else was there, just him and me. And so I said, is this story true? What is this, you know? I said, do you have a 1,000 porno videos? And he said, no, I don't have that many. Maybe 300 or so. <laughs> but doesn't everybody? <laughs> and, uh, and it was after that, he told me that he had a dinner for the... No, he didn't tell me that. Somebody, a New York Times reporter told me that at the end of spring training he invited all the reporters to dinner and then he gave the guys copies of DVDs as presents you know I think he's the only guy in the history of the New York Yankees the only player to invite reporters the press to dinner he was like that you know he liked reporters when you interviewed him would you interview him in English or in Japanese Japanese so he didn't speak English a few words but he's a nice guy one of the nicest people I've ever met very friendly we were sitting there talking, and there was a Japanese reporter who was down in the right field bullpen area, and he saw us. It was his, Gaku Tashiro was his name. He's a Sankei reporter. He came walking up towards the dugout, 
as Matsuya was telling me this story. He says, yeah, I, you know, I, I give these to re, uh, reporters all the time. He says, I gave this guy a couple of, you know, porno DVDs. And Gakutashiro heard that as he was approaching the dugout, and he did a complete U-turn and went back to, <laughs> to the bullpen. Uh, so you never got one? I didn't get one, no. no. But it would be kind of nice little have a little keepsake, you know. Well, yeah, it'd be a nice story to tell people. But unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't get one. You've been interviewed before and talked with a lot of different people. But what's something you wish people asked you that you never seemed to get the chance to answer? I think I've been asked everything. <laughs> There is to ask. The one interview I had that really surprised me was uh, Larry King. I was on the Larry King show when he came to Tokyo in 1991. You were yeah. interviewed by Larry King? Yeah. He's my favorite interviewer. Yeah, he spent a week in Tokyo. I went on there, uh, I was divided into four different segments. There were the sumo wrestlers came on, and then Koike, she was a, I think she was a diet woman at the time. She was interviewed along with uh, Omai Kenichi, and then they brought mm. me on with Matt Winters, who was playing for the Nippon Hemp Fighters. And I remember I wanted to uh, talk about this, the Gaijin Ten Commandments that the Yomiuri Giants gave to their foreign players after Clyde Wright started acting up. You know, he set a record for fines when he was with the Giants. He threw a Coke bottle through the window of the manager's office. Uh, uh, he threw a trash can through the window of the clubhouse. And he did all sorts of things. And so uh, he tore up his uniform and threw it in the, in the team bath. So they, the next season when he came back, they presented this list of, you know, 10 rules of behavior that foreign players had to follow. And the press got a hold of it and, and called it the Gaijin Ten Commandments, Gaijin Jukai. Do you remember any of them? Yeah, do not severely tease your teammates. <laughs> do not disrupt team harmony. Do not break things or throw things on the bench. <laughs> uh, do, do not uh, take good care of your uniform. <laughs> <laughs> they're all things. They're, they're not the Ten Commandments. They're the... Ten things that Clyde did that you shouldn't do. Right, that's right. It was hilarious. And I was thinking that, you know, I wanted to tell, say these to Larry King, but I didn't have a chance to talk to the manager, and his handler, and there was no prep at all. So I'm sitting there, and he, all of a sudden he says, uh, are there any rules that players have to follow, <laughs> that foreign players have to follow? It's, I said, I'm glad you asked that question because I opened the copy of You Gotta Have One and read the Ten Commandments and he laughed like hell. It was cool. It's a great experience. Well, you've been around Japanese baseball almost your whole life. Right. And you've known and spoken with probably all the foreign baseball players. Right. Do you have a collection of anything or any prized possessions uh, not really. You know, I was never fond of having my photo taken with famous people and putting it on the wall. It just wasn't my thing. You know? I don't collect autographs or anything like that. The writing that I do is not, it's not really about baseball. It's about cultural conflict. It's the personalities that interest me. Uh, 
I've met a lot of players that I've really respected over the years. Oh, for, for sure. I really like Daryl Spencer, Leon Lee and his brother Leron Lee were just great. Leon's famous quote, players come over and they bitch and moan about, well, it's not like this in the major leagues, you know, this is really rinky-dink baseball. And we don't run 10 miles back to the hotel in spring camp. Leon's quote was, when you're invited into somebody's house for dinner, you don't complain about the food. You don't comment on the drapes or the carpet if you don't like it. You just keep your mouth shut. Of course, there's another side to that, but, you know, that's basically... What's the other side? Well, after a while, if you're a success in Japan and you, you, and you stay for more than three or four years, or, or, you know, you have a right to comment on the way they do things. And the way they, they train their pitchers, 100 pitches, 150 pitches every day, you know, Choji Morata, he had a, the ligament was busted and his manager told him the way to heal that is to go out and throw every day on the farm team. Somebody eventually told him about Dr. Jobin Carlin in L.A. Job did the Tommy John surgery on his arm and he came back. And he made a point of telling everybody that, you know, I'm not going to throw more than 100 pitches, and I'm not going to throw every day in practice. It's crazy. Has Japanese baseball changed? These days it has. You know, after Nomo went to the States, Nomo said, because Nomo had a sore arm, and his manager, this Keiichi Suzuki, who had won 300 games as a pitcher, was right. the manager. And he had a fourth season, he had a sore arm, and he said, and Suzuki said, go to the farm team and just throw every day and it'll go away. Nomo told me he knew that was wrong and he wasn't going to do it, so he found a loophole. He found a way to get to the, the States and he uh, signed with the Dodgers, but he told me the only reason I went was not because I wanted to play in the major leagues, but because I couldn't stand Suzuki. He said if he'd been fired, and I would have stayed in Japan. And up until then, they used, the Japanese used to think that if Americans complained about the crazy camp, spring training, you know, it's too long, too hard, thousand fungal drills, stupid. They used to think the guys were just lazy. And if pitchers like Clyde Wright didn't want to throw 100 pitches in the bullpen every day, there was something wrong with him. He was taking Japanese lightly, you know. He, was, uh, he wasn't showing proper respect for the game. Right. But then they began to see through these reports and the experiences of Japanese players in the States that, well, maybe they weren't being selfish wagamama gaijin, that there was actually a different way of doing things. But they've gotten more sophisticated about it. This exchange has really helped Japanese uh, become better. It's made it easier for foreigners. You don't see the conflict anymore that you used to, you know. Mm-hmm. You used to pick up the newspaper every day and there'd be some problem with right. the gaijin, but it, it seems to have disappeared. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about that. When, when I first came to Japan in the mid-1980s, there was always a story about one of the foreigners throwing a fit about something. It made for entertaining news, obviously, in the newspaper, but... Crazy that, right, right. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, you don't really hear that much anymore. And also, you don't see big... I mean, the salaries have become so hyper-inflated yeah. that you don't see guys coming over here at the end, as yeah. major league name players coming right. over at the end of their careers, like Reggie Smith or Roy White did. Right. They don't need to. Warren Cromartie as well, right? Yeah, Warren Cromartie. The story about him, he had a really difficult time in the beginning. 
he couldn't get the hang of Japanese pitching because he had an American-style swing. And so O was his coach, batting coach at the yeah. time. And so O said, I want you to take batting practice with a book under your arm. It made his swing more compact, and then he started hitting. Interesting. So Cromartie called O the best batting coach he's ever had anywhere. In fact, he named his child, born in Japan, O, Cody O. Cromartie. Wow. We all know getting a great sleep is important. And this is what Goo Goo is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Goo Goo. Better sleep, better you. Explore Japan in comfort and ease with Dream Drive. Rent a customized camper van to go camping, take nature hikes, relax at onsens, or just discover the many beautiful places less traveled around Japan. Dream Drive has various camper vans for solo travelers and families and is more affordable than trains and hotels as it's only one price per night. Go to dreamdrive.life to plan your next Japan adventure. Enter the coupon code ZEN and receive a sweet discount when making your customized camper van reservation. Dream Drive, the hotel on wheels. What are you curious about these days? People keep asking if I'm going to write a book about Otani, and I just, the idea of writing another book about baseball just does not. <laughs> You've tapped out. I just don't have the, the enthusiasm for it because I'll wind up writing the same thing, okay. which I've already, I've taken that to the well too many times. You know? and, I mean, there's only one story there that's the, this cultural difference, and I've explained that so many times. And He adds a new dimension to it because he's finally, the whole entire history of Japan versus the U.S., which started in the mid-19th century and baseball was introduced in the 1873 has been of Japan trying to catch up to the U.S. in baseball. And they keep coming closer and closer. You know, Nomo, they say, oh, yeah, he's a good pitcher, but you guys can't hit. And then Ichido came over and said, yeah, okay. He can hit, but he can't hit home runs, you know. And then Matsui came, won the World Series MVP, and then he said... Well, yeah, but he only hits 31 home runs. Nobody's ever won a home run title, right? And then here comes Otani, you know, just blasts the, the old way of thinking into the stratosphere. Throws the ball at 100 miles an hour, hits 500-foot home runs. There's a good chance he'll hit 60 home runs this year. I mean, he could... I had Jim Gray, the announcer, I saw an interview the other day, said that he thought that Otani was the greatest baseball player in the United States. So that's a new high for the Japanese. For sure. I mean, what can you say after that? Yeah. Well, you've never won a World Series. <laughs> they won the World Baseball title. Yeah, but that's not real baseball. I mean, the Americans, <laughs> you know, it's just spring training. Nobody cares about that. We didn't have our best players. Right, yeah. yeah. You have a photo in your book of you interviewing Bob Horner. But you don't talk about Bob Horner at all in the book. Right. And I was in Japan when Bob Horner came to Japan, so I remember all the hoopla. He was a serious flash in the pan when he came. He hit 31 home runs, but he only played he played less than half a season. 
didn't he have like five home runs in his first two games or seven yeah, in his first started, week or something like that? Then they started walking him, right? Yeah. You know, his strike zone expanded. <laughs> his strike zone expanded, yeah. And, yeah, Leon Lee was his teammate then. He had moved to the Yakult Swallows, and he said the umpire told him, he said, you guys are just bigger than the Japanese, so you have to have a bigger strike zone. He said, if we gave you a, a, you know, a proper strike zone, you'd hit too many home runs, and it's embarrassing for the Japanese. <laughs> uh, the flip side of that, it really hit home hard to me when Ichiro broke the major league hit record in right. the U.S. and how the Seattle fan, I'm from Seattle, and how the Seattle fans gave him such a standing ovation. Right. Whose record did he break? It was uh, George Sisler. And George Sisler's relatives were there to congratulate him. And I remember talking to my wife about that, and she said that would never happen in Japan. And it made me feel really, just made me feel really happy that he was greeted that way. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember. In fact, you know that Bass and Tuffy Rhodes and Alice Cabrera had a really good chance to break the O's home run record, right. single season home run at 55, and they were walked, you know, prevented from, they didn't get any pitches to hit because they said, we don't want a forwarder to break a Japanese record. And, uh, but after Ichiro broke that record, Sisler's record, you know, Matt Merton broke Ichiro's single season home run record. And, and he said nobody tried to walk him, nobody tried to prevent him. And he said players told him that, the, you know, the, the way Ichiro was treated changed the way the Japanese viewed Americans in Japanese baseball. Changed their whole perception. What a nice story. That's great. This is a, a question that I ask all my guests. What is your favorite Japanese word that doesn't have a real exact English translation. Uh, well, there's a lot of them. Konjo. Konjo? Spirit? Yeah, but it's more than that. I mean, right. it, you it, you translate spirit to for an American, it doesn't mean the same thing. Omoyari. Ooh, that's a good one. Em- empathy. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. It means something to Americans and a different thing to Japanese, you know. What does it mean to Japanese? It's something that has more depth and feeling and, and kimochi and uh, makes you cry. The Japanese really like to cry. You cer- certain things just set them off, right? You know, Especially at Koshien, they like to cry. Yes, right. Whether they win or lose, yeah. tears will be shed. So, derukui utare The nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Well, we do have that saying in the U.S., but it has the opposite meaning. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right. I did get a letter from George W. Bush. He sent me a handwritten letter. What did he say? He said, Dear Bob, I read Tokyo Junkie, and I'd just like to say thanks for the shout-out. I really enjoyed the book, you know. And he said, I, I wondered why you didn't write anything about Bobby Valentine. I was with the Texas Rangers. He was the, the manager until I fired him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he said, keep up the good work. It's handwritten. Nice. He made a couple of mistakes. He crossed them out. It's quite 
Amazing. On stationery, George W. Bush. That I hope you framed. I've got it. I, I don't know what to do with it. I copied it and sent it, put it on my Facebook page. That was fun because I did a tour for a meaning of Ichido. I did 22 cities in 51 days that was back in 2003, I think. And one of the cities I've, I visited was Jackson, Mississippi. And at this speech I gave, only one person showed up with a TV, and there was a TV crew there. So I gave the speech, and the guy who organized the event said, I'm sorry, I thought there would be a lot of people coming. And so he said, I want you to sign a copy of The Meaning of Ichido for George Bush, who was president of the United States at the time. He said, I'll get it to him. And so I did, and then uh, a few weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from the White House signed George W. Bush, and it said, Dear Mr. Whiting, both Laura and I really enjoyed the meaning of each. <laughs> we want to thank you for sending it. You know, just the thought of him and uh, his wife sitting in the West Wing reading the meaning of each of them made me laugh. But I, I don't know, but it was just a nice gesture. And then I wrote about that experience in Tokyo Junkie. Yes, you did. And somebody sent him a copy of Tokyo Junkie, and he read about himself, so he sent me this letter. Yeah. And he actually used the word shout-out? Yeah. Thanks for the shout-out. <laughs> okay. He's getting hip. Hip in his old, old age. Yeah. Wow. Tokyo Junkie, 60 years of bright lights and back alleys. And baseball. It's an awesome memoir. In fact, it's a lot like us long-term residents. We don't even need to write a book now because you wrote it for us. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Glad to hear that. Thank you for sitting down with me today. I really enjoyed hearing your stories, and it's been a real honor to meet you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's an honor to do this. Thank you very much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was part two of my interview with author Robert Whiting. If you would like to hear more about his book, Tokyo Junkie, 60 Years of Bright Lights and Back Alleys in Baseball, go to nowandzen.jp for part one, which is episode 41. That one is less baseball and more bright lights and back alley adventures and amazing stories. If you have not yet read Tokyo Junkie, definitely pick it up. It's a great read, highly recommended. You can get it at Amazon. You can also learn more about Bob Whiting at robertwhiting.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and give Now and Zen a positive rating or even a comment, or feel free to share it on social media far and wide. You can also hear more Now and Zen podcast episodes at nowandzen.jp. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great day and talk to you next time.